Disability rights and inclusion activist Imani Barbarin, also known as Crutches and Spice, said, The very first thing that white supremacy robs of you that you don't realize is the ability to imagine a world without it. And once you start making moves like you can, it will become as loud as possible to assert its dominance over you. When we talk about imagining or building a better future for to us LGBTQ plus youth in Ontario, all I can think about is the fact that we won't be able to do that unless we have restorative justice. When I initially came up with the slogan, burn this capitalist shit show to the ground, I was joking, but also kind of serious because we can't get better and build better until we address the broken systems we have in place right now. It's like how Audre Lorde says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. This capitalist, patriarchal, colonial, white supremacist, ableist, racist system cannot be dismantled with the same violence that created it and the same violence that upholds it. Building a better future involves decolonization, disability justice, accountability, love, and care. Hello and welcome to your favorite hour of the week with the three chaotic queers. What's cooking, good-looking chaotic queers? You're listening to The Three Chaotic Queers, a bi-weekly podcast series where the three of us youngsters can openly discuss what it means to be queer in today's society and why we're ready to burn this capitalistic shit show to the ground. Hello, queerios. I'm Sydney. I'm a mad neuroqueer, and I use dual sets of pronouns, they, them, and she, her. I'm once again joining in from the original lands of the displaced Huron-Wendat people adjacent to the Chippewa of Georgina Island. Hello, girls, gays, and theys. My name is Rabia, my pronouns are she, they, and I'm feeling extra chaotic today. I am joining you all from the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. And good morning, good evening, happy 3 a.m. or whenever you're tuning in to this podcast. My name is Nicole and my pronouns are she, her, and they, them. I'm joining you today from the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Today we are joined by another featured guest, Destiny Pitters from LGBT Youth Line Stop. Destiny is here to chat with us about some of the current grassroots movements that support disability justice in anti-carceral and abolition work. Destiny, would you mind formally introducing yourself to the crew? Absolutely. Hi, folks. My name is Destiny. My pronouns are she, her, and I am a queer, disabled Black woman. I was born in Toronto, but raised on the territory of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, and Neutral Peoples in Brantford, which is Haldeman Treaty Territory. Um, And despite being displanted on Turtle Island via slavery, with my ancestors being brought to Zaymaka, which is the original title of Jamaica, I am so privileged to learn and play on this land. Um, It has nurtured my life, not only from literally sustaining me, um, but also being a huge refuge for my wellness. So a lot of the work that I try to do pushes back against these colonial systems that try to extinguish not only the lives of Black and Indigenous peoples, but the land that we live on. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, thanks so much for introducing yourself, Destiny. Uh, I'll speak for myself and my fellow podcast um, folks. Um, we're extremely excited to have you on today and to, to chat. We're very, very excited. 
um, with getting to know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in abolition and decarceral work within the community? And how did you initially become involved in this type of work? Yeah, so personally, I am ever increasingly interested in abolition and decarceral work because I know firsthand and through my relations how carceral systems disproportionately harm Black, Indigenous, disabled, queer, and trans communities. And when I think about you know, so-called Canada, where we're at right now, and its institutions and systems, it's like a veneer, right? A layer that has been <clears throat> mapped onto existing territories and is really underpinned by a lot of violence, right? Genocide and slavery. And so to me, it's really hard to distance the institutions that we have today, like, for example, policing um, from their origins in racism and ableism and colonialism. So I was really able to like more formally act on these beliefs when I started going to university actually um, and volunteered with Laurier's Student Public Interest Research Group, which is a mouthful, you can just say Ellisburg. Um, and they host and support a lot of anti-oppressive initiatives. So when I joined, I was exposed to like all of these amazing harm reductive badass groups. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like how I got started. Um, and I'm not sure if you wanted to hear any more about like specific experiences that I had. If any you wouldn't mind sharing, I think our audience would be very happy to hear some. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of my favorite experiences was volunteering with an Ellisburg group called Fruits from Fruits. Super gay. It was just a few queers who set up a basic needs distribution site um, outside of the old jail in our downtown on purpose. And we would hand out food, water, menstrual products and clothes and just chat with community members who came by, many of whom were houseless. And it was really important to me because we were offering an alternative to other distros that existed that often had caveats like, oh, you have to be clean, quote unquote, to receive support, or you have to convert to this religion to receive support. So our setup was a lot more accessible and affirming and queer friendly. Um, and now I mainly do decarceral work with the Disability Justice Network of Ontario. And we advocate for like widespread reevaluation and or abolition of carceral systems that again, disproportionately harm disabled and 2S cutie BIPOC communities. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really exciting to see how you first got involved in this um, and how you're continuing to stay involved in the work that you're doing with Disability Justice Network Ontario. Um, and so before I ask the next question, I'm actually going to provide a bit of context. Um, it's a little blurb, so give me a sec. Um, so a recent article from the Toronto Prisoners Rights Project titled Where is Sylvia Jones explores a plethora of issues related to criminalization in Ontario. At first, when I read this, I was not entirely sure who Solicitor General Sylvia Jones was and what she did, so I did some more digging. According to the Ontario Canada website, the Solicitor General ensures, quote, Ontario's communities are supported and protected by law enforcement and that public safety and correctional systems are safe, effective, efficient, and accountable, end quote. Keywords here are safe and accountable because these systems are clearly not. 
The article also states that 15 out of 25 of the adult jails in Ontario are currently experiencing active outbreaks of COVID-19, which is 60% of these jails in Ontario. Also, nearly 30% of Ontario prisoners are in medical isolation. That does not sound safe to me whatsoever. And with that being said, we wanted to know um, how you think the COVID-19 pandemic has compounded issues of criminalization and health that impact queer and racialized youth or communities. Uh, the answer is horrendously, but I am very glad that you ask because um, it's really important. So I'm going to have to illustrate my point by kind of walking you through it in like a funneled way. Um, so when I hear this, the first thing that came to my mind was an article written by Nora Loretto. Um, unfortunately, I forget the publisher, but it was shared by the Disability Justice Network. And in it, Loretto articulates how 58% of all COVID deaths in Canada have been people in residential care. And this term, residential care, includes any institution where individuals are housed, so prisons, group homes, shelters, long-term care, etc. And so thinking of the overrepresented demographics in these spaces, we know that most COVID-19 deaths in Canada have disproportionately been disabled people, racialized people, right? Those incarcerated who are more likely to be disabled, black, indigenous, queer, and trans because we're more often criminalized. Um, and these spaces are overcrowded and often lacking adequate resources. So to bring it back, if, for example, you are criminalized while houseless or for using drugs, which many 2S cutie BIPOC are, you're likely going to be siphoned into one of these carceral spaces that are already horrendous, but also makes transmission of the virus like so easy. Um, and as well, like people who use drugs or are houseless um, are more likely to have chronic illnesses that make them susceptible to worse complications should they get COVID-19. So this is why like harm reduction strategies are really key to reducing transmission and lessening severity of symptoms. But the pandemic has also exacerbated overdose deaths in Canada due to lack of access of resources and safe spaces as we continue to like open up and shut down on a whim. So yeah, overall it's, racialized, queer, and disabled communities facing the brunt of health concerns in this pandemic because these carceral care systems that we have in place are not made to keep us alive or nourish us in a sustainable and community-oriented way. Thank you for sharing that. That was literally so well said. Um, and I want to touch on something you mentioned in the earlier part of that, where you talked about like people being transferred into these institutions. Um, um, so in the article, they talk about how transferring prisoners to um, different institutions to control outbreaks has also resulted in the widespreadness, widespread of COVID-19 to other facilities that might not have had COVID-19 in the beginning. Um, and this kind of connects to the issue of social isolation and the fact that those that are being imprisoned are also being strictly isolated and restricted from seeing their families for so long and it's gotten to the point where they've been so disconnected from their support systems that it's beginning to impact their mental health and their overall well-being because they're experiencing an overload of trauma that is being unaddressed by those in power <laughs> sylvia jones um 
And so I just wanted to point that out because a lot of the issues that you're talking about are interconnected and interrelated and they're just overall not being addressed because people in our general society don't hear about this on the news. They don't know about this. Um, and it's really important to talk about. Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, those who are in, I guess, state-sponsored um, institutions and under their care are almost assumed by the general public to be um, being taken care of and safe. And you would assume that it would, uh, they would be taken care even, I guess, with heavier measures or even more than the general public because they are um, at such, um, in very vulnerable situations, but that's just not the case. Um, and I think um, Destiny and Rabia, what you both said is completely true. And what I also wanna add on is um, as we begin to uh, now open up and drop all COVID mandates as of, I think, very soon, next week, if I'm not mistaken, um, the third week of March, it really worries me what is of to come in the future um, for people who are imprisoned currently, um, just based on how things were during the height of COVID. The pandemic is not over and it won't be over for a while. And you know, as we try to lessen up our restrictions, what is going to happen? Yeah, so I, I think, and others have predicted that these jails and prisons will continue to be overrun by COVID outbreaks. Uh, COVID outbreaks inside these institutions have spiked to the highest numbers we have seen since the onset of the pandemic um, quite recently. And this is totally unacceptable and poses not only a health risk and a safety risk to those inside, but also to the general public. So it's gonna affect everyone. Um, since the start of the pandemic, I have uh, 4,004 imprisoned people and 1,115 correctional staff have contracted COVID-19 um, in Ontario jails. And I'm sure that number has gone up since I found this statistic. Um, on January 12th, 2022, it was reported that 1,961 prisoners were in medical isolation. Uh, over the last three weeks, there have been no further reports, uh, leaving those outside in the dark. We don't know what's happening uh, with these prisoners. And um, I also want to point out that after they recover from COVID-19, many people are beginning to experience long COVID and there has been no care in these institutions, let alone outside these institutions, to care for those who are experiencing the varying symptoms that come with long COVID. Um, according to the Solicitor General that Rabia was referring to earlier, people inside are being put into medical isolation uh, if they have even suspected to have COVID-19. Uh, we have not heard from community members that, ice, that medical isolation is no different from solitary confinement with over 23 hours in cells with no ability to shower and no way to contact loved ones or connect with lawyers. Uh, people are left completely in the dark and it's totally unacceptable. Um, yeah. I just want to add on that um, when you talk about long COVID, it's really important to acknowledge that long COVID for a lot of, or long-term COVID, I don't know if that's the right one. Um, I'm just gonna say long, long COVID. 
Um, but long COVID for a lot of people is disabling. A lot of people aren't able to do what they used to be able to do, um, especially because of the fact that there's not a lot of research that's going being put into this right now and not a lot of good recommendations for them. And so with that and the people in prison that are experiencing long COVID, the overall like healthcare that they're being provided is so inadequate and it's so shitty and it makes me so mad. It's literally gotten to the point where people that are in prison are afraid to seek medical attention or even do a COVID-19 test because they don't want to be forced into further isolation. The article that I mentioned in the beginning also ends with the quote that prisoners should not have to make a choice between their physical health and their mental well-being which I think is so important because we don't have to make that decision. So why should they? At the end of the day, they're still people. And I'm so tired of our politicians not treating them as such. Yeah, thank you for adding that, Rabia. Um, we keep seeing constant mismanagement and undercounting by the Ontario government, which leads us to believe that these numbers are even misrepresented in provincial jails. Uh, it is deplorable that there is no reliable public information about COVID-19 testing and positive diagnoses in Ontario jails. This information is vital for the health of all Ontarians, especially Indigenous and Black communities who are targeted by police and overrepresented in the carceral systems, as you spoke about, Destiny, earlier. Um, so there's so much to say regarding this question. And... I don't know where to leave it Leave it off. I, I don't know if there's a hopeful turn. Uh, currently, there's not much being done uh, by our, our government and our state, but I, I hope they hear our voices and that we can make our voices be heard and hopefully enact those changes going forward. And with that, I would like to ask Destiny the next question. Um, and that question is, what are some community organizations, grassroots projects, or individuals you would suggest as a resource for those who would like to learn more, but might be overwhelmed or not know where to start? Yeah, this is such an excellent question. And hopefully I don't like ironically overwhelm people with my laundry list of people that I admire, but oh, there's so many people doing cool, cool, cool work um, for disability justice and like decarceral work. So. Um, I think I'd just like to start with Skylar Williams and the whole land back team. They managed to thwart development by Foxgate on their territory at 1492 land back lane um, after like approximately 500 days of occupation. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure you also talked about 1492 in your first episode. So shouts out to that for anyone listening, if you want to go back uh, and learn a little bit more. Um, but yeah, there they um, organize community events and also show solidarity with other land defenders across Turtle Island. So huge inspiration um, to me. Um, I think also Sarah Jama and the Disability Justice Network of Ontario, of course. Um, it was co-founded by Sarah to advocate for anti-racist, anti-ableist community action across the province. And I'm really glad to have joined their Youth Action Council so that we can keep um, highlighting disparities um, of facing like anti-blackness and ableism in our work. Another group um, or a couple of groups that I think are also really cool is the Prisoner Correspondence Project, which is based out of Montreal, and Black and Pink, which is a U.S. org, and really any other incarcerated pen pal projects, um, because these two in particular connect LGBTQ plus incarcerated folks 
to those outside in order to build networks and reduce isolation. Um, and really it's like a method of harm reduction um, because unfortunately it's a statistic that those who receive mail um, in prison are less likely to experience violence at the hands of prison staff um, because they're aware that those prisoners have someone on the outside who cares about them and would know if something bad were to happen. So um, really a gross piece of information when I think about it, but I think it's really cool that people are doing that kind of work to mitigate that violence. Um, a few other suggestions, I would say the Hamilton Encampment Support Network or just anyone doing encampment support. Um, this is a volunteer led group on the front lines who shares news, they organize protests um, and support their houseless neighbors in the face of ongoing police violence in Hamilton. Um, two artists who are really important to me are Pri and Harmeet Rahal. They are based in Toronto um, and they use their work to advocate for disability justice and anti-oppression. And way back when I was a youth ambassador last year, um, Pri was the first person to teach me about zine history. Um, so that was a huge part of my journey to learn how those tools are grounded in Black, Indigenous, 2SLGBTQ plus resistance practice. Um, so yeah, last, I would say the Brantford Ellisburg team, as I talked about before, they were the first people to introduce me to grassroots organizing. Um, and some initiatives they do are like guerrilla sex ed workshops in our local library after Doug Ford's like really shitty 2018 sex ed curriculum regression, um, Fruits from Fruits I talked about. And then we did other things like banner drops in support of Wet'suwet'en, online auctions to fundraise for community members and land back camps, um, and just other like consent education workshops. Amazing. I actually remember that banner drop and it's so cool to know that you were part of that. Um, yeah, I also uh, went to school in the Hamilton area. So a lot of the people that I went to school with and that I worked with actually were on the Youth Advisory Council during the first few years. So when I saw that you joined it a few months ago, I was like, holy shit, this is great. Destiny is going to be amazing. Um, and Sarah Gemma is really cool. Um, back in the day, I had to look for something called Champions of Change, and I recommended her, but then the campaign never went through. But I really love her and how she mentors younger racialized youth on how to actually start grassroots initiatives, because so many people just want to continue building their brand and don't give a fuck about the continuity. Or, you know, like not everybody cares about that, but sometimes that's how it comes off when you don't take the time to mentor the younger people. Because as we've said, like I saw an article about buddies in bad times being in peril right now because they're not making a smooth transition. Eventually the youth will take over these spaces. So you have to help facilitate a smooth transition. And I also really love Sarah because she was a speaker at the Senate last year when the house was debating whether they should expand eligibility criteria for medical assistance in dying, which is made for short. I think some people say it mad, but I'm pretty sure it's made. <laughs> she and other invitees, including one of a really cool person I know named Mads, um, they were very critical about how the federal government was so quick to expand the criteria of medical assistance in dying before they were willing to even put legislation down to 
putting guaranteed universal basic income. There's been an MP that has been campaigning for that for about three or four years now. This bill about expanding criteria, and I support everybody's right to choose death at the time that they choose, but it is just really sick that our government was quicker to sponsor the death of people who are chronically ill and disabled rather than investing in our actual well-being. It was just really disturbing and I really admire the fact that she went there and others went there and they said it to the government even though unfortunately it went through. I really admire how they went there and said straight to their faces said that your deaths are on your hands. Thanks for sharing that, Sydney. I did not know that at all, actually. Um, But I do have another recommendation for folks if they want to check out an individual. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone already knows who I'm going to (laughs) say, but Imani Barbarin, aka Crutches and Spice. Um, I admire her work so much and the way that she uses social media, humor, and hashtags to actualize resistance and form form and strengthen community. She is the creator of hashtags, um, patients are not faking, hashtags, things disabled people know, hashtag able to reared, and many others, which allow people to talk about their experiences of ableism, microaggressions, and discrimination, which in turn starts important conversations that connect disabled people around the world. So if you're looking to get um, started anywhere and have TikTok or Instagram or even just Google or, um, <laughs> this is Juno. <laughs> You can check Crutches and Spice out um, on those different forums. Oh, yeah, she's also on Twitter, so. (laughs) Thank you for visiting the podcast, Judo. Welcome. Six chaotic queers. Is that six? One, two, three. I can't count. Five? Five chaotic queers. Um, Now that Juno, Rabia's cat, has joined us. Um, I love all of your recommendations. And, yeah, I'm sure we would love to um, link them in our show notes if folks want to check them out and learn more about these resources and these grassroots organizations and projects. Um, I am going to recommend an Ottawa-based resource center for queer youth uh, where I personally got started just um, learning about um, everything basically. Uh, It's called Kind Space. Uh, Currently they're offering trans ID clinics um, and they're currently um, doing starting fundraising for a paid sick day fund for lg to us lgbtq plus newcomers immigrants essential workers uh without paid sick leave from their employer and regional they're also doing regional organization uh gsv training uh plus they have this awesome queer library which i loved to access back in my uh, younger youth days. Um, It's one of the biggest queer libraries in the country. It's a great place to start learning about yourself and others' identities, share a space with other queer folks and give back to the community. Um, So overall, it's a great place to start. Um, If even if you want to learn about uh, decarceral work and uh, disability justice, I would highly recommend this as a resource center and a place to start. So many great suggestions, so many places for folks to check out. But with all that said, kind of leads us into what we want to ask you the most when we're thinking about building better futures. 
what types of movements and our policies do you hope to see emerge or grow in Ontario over the next five years? And how will this help build a better future for 2 LGBTQI plus youth? And I'm going to say what I said to Faye last week or two weeks ago. Make it 10 years if that is more attainable to you, but five years if you're feeling like the world's got their shit together. Yeah, no, I am so, so excited by this question. Um, I have three things that I mainly want to see. Um, forgive me if I go on a tangent or stop me, but um, I think I'd start with an increased adoption of mutual aid and like harm reductive practices. Um, for example, Toronto just launched its first ever mental health response team, which is just comprised of like social workers, um, and it's completely absent of police presence, which is so, so important for the safety, especially of like racialized folks, but also to us LGBTQ plus folks, disabled folks who, again, we are more likely to be criminalized. Um, so I think that's really cool. And then just other like deinstitutional community alternatives to care, like doula work. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, a doula is a trained companion who provides support to another person during a significant health-related experience in their life. So they're popularly known for like birth work, but um, I had a really cool opportunity to research um, death doulas, actually. I was a research assistant under Dr. Rebecca Goderis, super cool, works out of Wilfrid Laurier University. Um, and I was just like gathering research on um, end of life care as facilitated by doulas. So they can offer like transportation, emotional and spiritual care, education from the dignity of your own home. Uh, so you don't have to worry about being in a carceral care system that might abuse you. So I think that is so important. Um, the second thing I wanna see is an increased support of disability justice. Um, DJNO is calling for a raise in ODSP, which is the Ontario Disability Support Program to like $2,500 because right now it is not livable. I think it's like $1,100. Rent is not even $1,100, it's ridiculous. Um, so that's something I really, really wanna see. And then last, um, definitely a redistribution of funds from like police precincts across Canadian cities to community services. This is a huge harm reductive practice because it's a proactive method to curb so-called crime and also just keep marginalized folks out of carceral care systems. So I think overall it contributes to a better future for 2SLGBTQ plus youth um, because these steps, little and large, get us closer to a society in which our identities and expressions and means of survival are not equated with crime. Like for God's sake, let's get away from crime. So those are the things that I'm really, really eager to see. I love all of those, Destiny. And um, I, for one, cannot wait to see uh, queer, racialized, disabled youth thriving um, in the future with all these policies that we're dreaming up. Um, personally, um, yeah, I, I would love to see all of those. And additionally, <laughs> I would love to see further progress within the movement for decriminalizing uh, drug and substance use. 
Uh, so yeah, most of the crime, fear, and other side effects of um, narcotic use and abuse uh, probably would not exist without the laws that make addiction a crime. Um, and yeah, so drug legislation continues to reflect and reinforce these myths about drug use, unfortunately. Uh, the criminalization of specific substances and their labeling of their users as dangerous and criminals um, serves several political purposes. It legitimizes the isolation, punishment, involuntary treatment, and imprisonment of people who use drugs, or PWUD, and the eradication of the reasons which our system does not care for those who are criminalized, unfortunately. Um, institutionalized racism and social prejudices against the poor minorities um, ensure that the laws themselves and their enforcement are aimed to control these people. Um, yeah, so while substances associated with politically powerless groups are labeled dangerous, um, those used and sanctioned by the dominant culture, such as nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, etc., are portrayed as like normal and the Western way of life, unfortunately. So I would love to see um, the expansion of, um, yeah, Suboxone and methadone clinics and pharmacies and, um, yeah, peer and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm looking for a word. Um, just. I guess, peer support in leading these people to these resources and um, an increase of inaccessibility to, the, to these resources um, and also by loosening and decreasing wait time on insurance prior authorization requirements because it is also a barrier um, that stops people from getting the treatment and the help that they need um, and makes them wait years and years which is super unfortunate and make someone without help. So that's what I would love to see. Rabia, what would you like to see for the future? I just had to say those were all really great ideas and I really hope that those become a reality. I would personally love to see funding being allocated back into communities. Um, I also wrote in my notes, give our people some fucking money because we deserve it. And that's how shit can actually be done. Um, I recently read an article that I think it said either 400 million or 400 billion. I don't know if it was billion, actually. I think it was million, but 400 million in government funding um, that's supposed to go into these different institutions and support systems still hasn't been sent off in 2022. So they're just holding off on the money. They're not actually supporting people. I don't understand what they're doing. Um and Juno really wants cuddles right now, so <laughs> I'm going to make it quick. But our current system's attempt to provide support has become a form of control that continues to re-traumatize queer, disabled, and racialized people. Um, and so when we talk about different things that we want to see in the future, we must be intentional in the work that we're doing and the policies that are emerging to not replace one oppressive system with another one. And I believe that we have the power to shift the ways that we engage with people who are experiencing a crisis or need support. And we also have the power to hold space to center communal care over carceral harm. 
Um, and my ending note was going to actually talk about the Toronto police less um, mental health response teams, but I'm really glad that you brought it up, Destiny. Um, and I'm going to pass it over to Sydney because I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. So um, one of the things that I definitely want to see is an expansion of those programs. Um, I think that part of the issue, though, is that when you get outside of city centers, there isn't accessible peer-led crisis response training or anything like that. Like, And what is available is state-sanctioned. Oh, watch me try and pronounce words today. A lot of the state-sponsored crisis and mental health training is very repetitive. And honestly, I've been to multiple where literally it was the same thing and it just ended in redirect this person to a safe person. And I was like, aren't we the safe person? Or what if that person that you're telling me to send them to is not safe? I am autistic. If you send me to a crisis center, there is a high chance that I am going to be traumatized. And I've already said this to my family before. Never send me unwilling. If it's serious, I am willing to go. But if you send me unwilling, it's going to be a whole lot of trauma for everybody and I will not be talking to you anymore. But all this to say, I think that we really need to be training the peers, peers who use drugs, peers who have crises, peers who have mood disorders, not just like people with depression and anxiety, because honestly, it is very common and it's very valid, but it's just not when we only look at mental health through an anxiety and a depression lens, we miss so much and we start to hurt people. Um, so I think even that needs to be expanded. And really, I just think that we need to be providing money for them. But also, I am agreeing with Nicole that I think that there should be decriminalization of drugs, but I respectfully disagree in the approach, only because I find that like a lot of the healthcare workers use a vice model which basically just says that if you use drugs you're a bad person and that's fucking stupid not stupid stupid's a bad word too it is just really redundant and it's not fair because we all know that there are ceos doing coke in the bathroom before a meeting and they are not seen as bad people by many there's people doing heroin. Heroin was literally invented by Bayer to keep the soldiers on the field because morphine was making them too tired to fight. So this is literally drugs that were developed to cause violence or to perpetuate violence and build into this like punitive system where like we needed to punish somebody for something that they did. And just like, yeah, I just think that too many of the healthcare workers view it through that model or they view it through a neurobiology model, which is just like, all drug use is harmful and not really recognizing that there are many, many situations where drug use is what is keeping somebody alive, um, especially under the trauma of not living with a home. If you're living unhoused, it is totally fair to want to do drugs or to want to smoke a cigarette to stay warm. It's freezing cold outside. Like we've seen people shivering across the street, choosing not to wear a coat while waiting for the bar smoking their cigarettes to stay warm. Why are you judging the people across the street? And just, yeah, I just don't think in the next five to 10 years, it will be safe enough to be sending people into clinics or pharmacies. Although I do think it should be available. If people want that kind of care, they should be able to get it. But I do really enjoy that Vancouver has started dispensing supplies of opioids and soon other drugs as well, that they have bought and tested or are pharmaceutical grade and came from a pharmacy. And then they're dispensing them through machines. So 
in this case, you do need a prescription. And obviously I would like to move away from that, but it gives you the benefit that you don't have to interact with a healthcare worker because not all healthcare workers receive the same training and not all of them receive up-to-date training or, you know, it serves a certain purpose. Um, and the medical model just doesn't agree with disability or drug use a lot of the time. Yeah, I guess that's how I wanted to wrap that up, but does anybody else have other points to add on to this? Yes, Cindy, I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, I was seeing it in like a totally idealistic world where uh, the world that we dreamed up in our last episode, uh, talking about health and the healthcare system was put into place. Um, and in that case, healthcare workers would be safe, but unfortunately, as you said, the medical model is not perfect and does not uphold and treat with dignity people who are queer, people of color, and those who are disabled. Um, so I really love your alternative that you've that you've come up with here. It's great. Definitely like decriminalization of all drugs because we know that prohibition of alcohol didn't work either. So it would be silly. Prohibition of weed didn't work in Canada. It was we basically the only like popular thing we ever voted in in the last 10 years was weed I swear okay um yeah but that wraps up all of our formal questions that we had for you today destiny but we would love to let everyone know before we go where they can find your work online if they want to see some of it yeah, this has been such an amazing conversation. Um, I'm so honored to have joined your podcast. And if the audience is interested in connecting with me, they can check out my Instagram. It's at underscore Destiny Eden. Um, I also have a cute little drawing account. So support an artist. It's at Tinderfruit. Um, yeah. Amazing. And honestly, love your art account. It is super fucking cute. Uh, everybody go check it out. Thank you so much, Destiny, for coming in on the Three Chaotic Queers podcast. We really had a great time chatting with you about this, and I'm sure that our listeners at home enjoyed it and learned a lot. And if they didn't, then they need to go check out those resources because time's up. Go read a book. Yes, thank you so much, Destiny. We loved talking to you, um, and we hope we can connect with you in the future again. Um, and we would like to leave you and also our listeners with some fuel for your anger and passion for the change you envision. Critical disability and carceral studies researcher Megan Linton said, under our current carceral system, much of the death and debilitation within these institutions was not preventable because the carceral structure itself is homicidal. Abolitionist futures are the only path that will prevent the mass debilitation and death brought forth by capitalism-induced crises. Thank you everyone for your submissions to the anonymous vent and validate form. The form is now closed, unfortunately, but we are very excited to be answering your questions on our fourth and final episode. So don't forget to come back on April 15th for the riveting tell all Q&A session with the three chaotic queers. You can find this podcast on any of your favorite streaming platforms and the full episode transcripts will also be available through LGBT Youth Lens Linktree or linked in the show notes. Until next time, take it easy, queer kin and chaos lovers. This episode was brought to you by the Provincial Youth Ambassadors Program at LGBT Youth Line. The featured guest on this podcast is Destiny P, 
Wild Programming Coordinator. The creators and co-hosts of this podcast are Nicole, Rabia, and Sydney. Audio technicians are Nicole and Ulang. Graphic design lead is Rabia. Promotions team is Rabia and Sadia. Transcribers are Cameo and Sydney. Production support and creative mentor is Kumari. Logistics coordinator and interview support is Katrina. And finally, the free music sources from this podcast are from the Soundtrap Official Loops. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks time.